Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Callum Henderson. And I'm Carly Hills. And on this week's episode, we're talking about the wreck of HMS Invincible, which in its heyday was considered one of the finest ships in the British Royal Navy. Although it sank off the coast of Portsmouth in 1758, it remains the best preserved 18th century warship known in UK waters. The wreck is the subject of an article in the latest issue of Current Archaeology magazine, which is out now in the UK, and it's also available to read in full on the past website, and there's a link to that in this episode's description. A new exhibition about the wreck of Invincible is currently running at Chatham Historic Dockyards, and Carly, you went along to see it, is that right? Uh, what did you make of it? Oh, it was really, really interesting. There are so many artefacts from the wreck, and they give you insights into all aspects of what life was like in the Georgian Navy. They've got tools and weapons and ammunition and plates and insights into their food, and also pieces of clothing and quite personal items like wig curlers and tobacco pipes. It's really interesting. And there's also a really immersive section that tells you more about what doing underwater archaeology is like. I really enjoyed it. And it's running at Chatham until the 20th of November, if any of our listeners want to go. Very good. And um, obviously, we wanted to learn a bit more about the wreck itself. Uh, So we spoke with uh, Dr. Daniel Pascoe, um, a diver and archaeologist with a particular interest in the shipwrecks of the Royal Navy. Uh, And he also headed the excavations on the uh, Invincible. Um, So, yeah, here's our conversation with him. Okay, well, Dan, thank you very much for joining us um, this morning. Uh, I was wondering to begin with if we can talk a bit about the history of um, HMS Invincible and uh, how what was originally a French ship ended up in the 18th century Royal Navy and then at the bottom of the sea. Yes. Um, Well, as you say, it was originally a French uh, in 1744. The French wanted to develop a new type of warship uh, that could uh, basically um, uh, uh, fight all over the world, defending its maritime interests, uh, such as uh, you know trade routes, colonies. Um, they kind of didn't want to go toe to toe with the British anymore. You know, big fleet battles. So it's, it's about building a navy that had general purpose warships that could literally fight all over the world. Um, and Invincible was a product of this. And they kind of, what they did was they uh, took their third-rate ships and kind of stretched them out, um, enabling them to carry more heavier guns lower down rather than, you know, smaller guns higher up. So you, you with Invincible, you've got a kind of two, two-and-a-half-decker rather than one of these slow, lumbering three-deckers, which were more ideal for, you know, fighting um, in big fleet battles. But Invincible was uh, highly manoeuvrable. Um, she had a, a powerful uh, weight of uh, ordnance. Um, so she could she could easily um, sort of fight against, you know, you know, even bigger ships such as, you know, second rates and first rates. Um, and essentially these these warships became the 74 gun ship, which Invincible was one of the first becomes the backbone of all the most powerful navies in the world. Uh, But the French developed them first. And um, the British under under Anson, who would be who was famous for circumnavigating the world uh, in in 1740, uh, plundering Spanish treasure ships and bringing them back. So he was very much a a hero uh, back in England. And he was with a British fleet superior in numbers. Um, and unfortunately for Invincible, 
who was uh, escorting a French East India fleet, ran into Anson. Uh, there was a big, there was a battle at Cape Finisterre, 1747, and superior numbers of British ships overwhelmed Invincible, and uh, we captured her. But Anson realised there was something special about Invincible. She was much bigger than our equivalent ships, um, uh, and he thought, well, you know, took her back to to Portsmouth, had her surveyed. And he kind of thought, this is the future. This is the future of British warship design. Um, but obviously, these things don't happen overnight. Uh, we had our own system of building ships. And uh, sometimes it takes a bit of time to convince, <laughs> uh, um, you know, our Navy, our Admiralty, that this is what we should be doing. But, you know, I think a decade later, we saw the light and uh, we start producing our own. Um, and actually, two ships were sort of copied on uh, Invincible's design, the Valiant and the Triumph. Um, and they went, yeah, they went on to become a really successful type of ship. And you can gauge that by the fact that the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805, 50% of the ships on all sides were 74-gun ships. They were truly the backbone of all, all the most powerful navies in the world, a general-purpose ship that could fight all over the world. It could compete in the line of battle, you know, even against, you know, 100, you know, ships of 100 guns. And that often was the case. You'd have 74s coming alongside 100 gun gun ships. Um, So, yeah, in a nutshell, I think that's uh, the the history of the 74 gun gun ship and and, uh, where it originates from. We can, the lineage of the 74 gun ship goes all the way back to Invincible. I was going to ask, sorry, and how did it end up uh, sinking? Ah. (laughs) <laughs> if it was sort of invincible rather calamitous <laughs> a series of calamitous events really uh, no great battle uh, it wasn't lost in a storm it was uh, um, uh, anchored off the east coast of the Isle of Wight we this was the period of the seven years war 1758 we the invincible was doing exactly what she was um, built to do and that was a head off and fight in uh, North America. So the other side of the Atlantic, sadly, she didn't get very far. Uh, and she, she, she ran aground on a, on a sandbank just, uh, just off the east side of the Isle of Wight. Essentially, what happened was um, when the order was given to, uh, to make sail, the anchor got stuck in the, in the mud. It took five, over 500 of the crew to try and free the anchor when it eventually did free. Uh, it snagged underneath the bow of the ship. And while this was happening, the ship was just drifting slowly to uh, Horsetail Sand, known as Dean Sand back then. And at the moment, the ship needed to to tack, to manoeuvre away from the sandbank. Um, the, the helm jammed and the rudder was stuck. And she just went into the sandbank. Um, there, was no, there was no loss of life. You know, it wasn't a big storm, stormy night. Um, everyone got off, the, but the ship basically essentially dug her own grave, um, you know, moving in the swell and the tide up and down, um, you know, worked her way into the sand and kind of dug this pit that she couldn't get out of. Um, and when you've got a huge ship with lots of heavy guns and, and provisions on board, it's bouncing up and down. It eventually breaks the seams and water comes in, uh, overwhelms all the ship's pumps and she gets stuck, fills with water and uh, they have to abandon it. And, um, you know, for several weeks, even months, she was above water and they were getting stores off 
um, you know, taking the, you know, the masks out and things like that. Um, but eventually, you know, because it's very shallow water, you know, when you wave action, the ship breaks up and she eventually sank beneath the waves and uh, until she was forgotten for uh, over 200 years. Yes. And then we come into her discovery. Yes, which was only by chance, wasn't it, when a, when a fisherman snagged his nets on, on some of the timbers? Uh, c- can we talk yes. about this rediscovery? Well, often it's the case that, you know, shipwrecks are discovered um, by fishermen. And this one was discovered by Arthur Mack and his friend, uh, Melvin Gofton. And I have to say that Arthur isn't just a fisherman. He's a, he's a historian. He's got a wealth of knowledge of uh, the Portsmouth area. He knows so much and he's so enthusiastic about archaeology and history, not just on, on Invincible. Um, and yeah, so it was his nets that snagged, snagged on the wreck and um, it, it stopped their boat in its tracks and when they pulled the nets in eventually pulled the nets in they had pulled up a piece of timber that had a wooden trenels and iron bolts in and arthur you know very knowledgeable realized that you know they had struck a a shipwreck but what wreck was it no idea at the time um but he had a friend that dived and they he came back uh, uh, a couple of weeks later once he relocated the wreck and uh, put his friend down, uh, John Broomhead. And John was, uh, from what Arthur tells me, uh, swimming along on the seabed. And there was just an expanse of timbers sticking out of the sand with artifacts everywhere. And, he'd, and he came up just, you know, excited, thrilled that they found this incredible shipwreck. But still, they kind of didn't know what it was. Uh, but obviously, Arthur... And John knew that it was really significant, uh, and really they, you know, they had to do something about it. And that's when they got in touch with John Bingman, who was in the navy at the time, and was working on other sites in the Western Solent on the Needles. So you got the wreck called you got two wrecks on the Needles, uh, the Pomone sank in eighteen eleven, and the Insurance around the seventeen fifties. So um, John Bingman was an ideal candidate to help them out and, and get think, get the project going. So they teamed up and they excavated the wreck um, over, you know, the whole of the 1980s and early 1990s and discovered that Invincible was really well preserved uh, on one side of the ship. So the port side from the bow, right from the bow, all the way to the stern and from the gun deck down to the the floor of the ship. And they systematically excavated, um, uh, excavated the site uh, and and recovered, you know, thousands of objects some of which are um are at chatham uh, historic dockyard or and and are on display there and have been on display um you know going back to th- those early early periods um yeah so yeah an incredible incredible find to find a mid-18th century warship yeah. <clears throat> the mary rose where you've got one half of the ship surviving and and in you know in seven meters of water, yeah. so it's amazing what you know sand you know can do. It, you know if if you get a good burial environment, even in shallow dynamic waters, you can get amazing uh, preservation. And that's what that's what they had with the with the invincible. Amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we see in the article that it's probably the largest maritime excavation since the Mary Rose. Certainly, one of the most spectacular. Um, and how did you become involved with um, the wreck? 
Well, um, I was living locally in Portsmouth at the time. Um, obviously, I you know I was I was working as an archaeologist, and uh, everyone you know most people have heard of the Invincible, and um, it was a site that I always wanted to dive uh, and work on, um, and I was very keen to you know sort of take on a site myself. And um, I found out that John Bingman was retiring from you know being the licensee of of the invincible so i uh contacted him to see uh if he would you know pass on the responsibility to me and we you know we had lunch and discussed it and um he said yeah take it on you know um he obviously saw that i was extremely keen and enthusiastic uh to continue his work and that's what i wanted to do really was to uh carry on um because you know i always thought there's no way you know it can all be done there's got to be you know other things to explore on the wreck um and so i just wanted to continue what he had him and arthur and john Brumhead had, had started really and uh, and that's what i started doing so from early on in two, 2010 um started diving the site and i immediately started to see that there was more showing on the seabed than i could see in uh, in their original site plans so john and his team had recorded the port the port side um with the exception of a little area in in the bow that they didn't quite finish off and then there were there were these kind of areas of structure out to the north that were related uh, perhaps to the starboard side but when i started diving these these areas to the to the north were growing and growing and and I was like, why, you know, why is there so much wreck out here? You know, I didn't think there was much of the subside surviving. But what I started to started to look at was um, uh, doing geophysical surveys each year. More of the wreck was uncovering. Why was it uncovering? Um, and I could see that the sandbank that Invincible wrecked on um, was moving. So in 17, so I started looking at charts and putting them into a, a geographical system and tracking the movement of that sandbank over time. And what you could see was that in 1758, she struck the southern side of this sandbank, and you move on to the 2000s, and uh, she's now lying on the very northern edge of that sandbank. So that whole sandbank has shifted, and that's why so much more is, is uncovering. So she was um, basically under th under threat if we, if we did nothing. But, I mean, those early years from 2010 to 2016, um, I was helped by the Nautical Archaeology Society and, and their members, and they helped me record um, what was, you know, the new parts of the wreck. And really, it was it was though, you know, it was that early work that uh, got the site recognition again uh, that it was vulnerable. And actually, there's another half of the ship that exists. And um, you know, if we don't do something like an excavation to record that that part of the wreck we're gonna we're gonna lose it because you know once a ship becomes exposed um especially in very shallow uh dynamic environments it's it's very rapid it rapidly deteriorates and really you want to get to the to the nice clean um preserved surfaces before they get you know um eaten by marine boring organisms like gribble and, and torido and basically it's basic erosion from the sea wave action so um yeah that so from 2017 we started excavating it uh luckily uh um 
I wasn't the only one to recognise we should do something. And I uh, got the support from Bournemouth University, the Maritime Archaeology Sea Trust, um, the Museum of the Royal Navy in Portsmouth, and obviously Historic England. So, uh, and and that's how that's how that's where we are today, basically. Wonderful. And I wonder before we get too much into the specifics of what you and your and your teammates found. Um, at CA, we often cover, well, we tend to cover more land-based archaeology than underwater sites. We really ought to do more maritime archaeology. But uh, because of this, I wondered, could you give our listeners a little bit of an idea of, of what an underwater excavation is like and, and what it was like working on the Invincible site? Yeah. Well, first of all, um, working underwater is not normal. Uh, it's incredibly exciting and it's an adventure every day. Every day is different. Um, just getting to what we call the job, you've got to put on all your diving equipment, which is your life support equipment. So it's a bit like going into space. You know, you, you could be wearing gear with a big umbilical on and you jump into the water. Some days it's crystal clear, uh, sun's out, uh, and it's like being in the tropics, loads of fish all around. And then other days it could be pitch black, uh, you can barely see your hand in front of your face. So every day is different. And then when it comes to the actual excavating the shipwreck, so first of all, it starts off, you see uh, timbers protruding through the sand and, you, you know, your imagination starts to run wild with you. What could be underneath there? Because you can't, you can't really see it. You've just got to try and, it's like a puzzle. But as you start um, hoovering, we use these things called airlift, which is basically an underwater hoover. And it sucks up the sediment to reveal uh, the shipwreck and all the material in it. And it basically, you, you do it layer by layer. Same principles as on land. You take layer by layer off. Um, and as you start going down the layers, you start revealing the inside. And in the case of Invincible, you are digging inside the ship. And you have three-dimensional structures. Which, so you're digging down and you find, you know, the Orlock deck. And on the Orlock deck, you find a coil of rope. And as you chase down the rope, then you find the side of the hull and you've got shelves with objects on. And once you've cleared away all the sand, you can actually see, it's like being in a museum, but underwater. It's like walking on the decks of victory, but through the medium of water. That's the only difference. But what you've got is the original objects where they were in 1758 so it's 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 traveling back in time that's, that's the best way i can explain it that has been encapsulated uh for 250 over about 260 years untouched um and that sand has sealed it and you've broken the seal uh <laughs> unfortunately but uh as long as you record it and bring things up carefully you, you know you're preserving it um, but yeah, no, it's a, it is like traveling back in time and you can really imagine what it was like to walk on those decks. I mean, some of the objects like the rope, for instance, is covered in tar pitch and the, the smell is as strong as it was in 1758. <laughs> so, it, you know, that kind of Stockholm tar, it's very distinctive. If you've ever gone around a dockyard, yeah. um, you know, you can smell the tar. It's exactly the same. So that smell hasn't changed. So again, through the medium of smell, you've travelled back to 1758. It's, it's, you don't usually yeah. think of smells underwater as well, do you? Well, I don't know. <laughs> it's mostly well, just what you think. 
it's all yeah exactly i mean underwater obviously it's all visual but as soon as you get it on the on the deck of your of your of your research vessel some of the smells are terrible yeah (laughs) imagine an old shipwreck sometimes when you crack open well we don't actually crack open but sometimes when you bring up a bottle that has a has a um uh cork still in it it has the contents of what was what was there still in there but you know seawater is leached Mm. in there and sometimes you can smell that kind of very smelly pungent kind of uh it's difficult to describe like rotten eggs uh, as the contents of that is no longer what it was um but yeah so some smells are pretty pretty horrendous but tar brilliant you know that that smells exactly how it did and i love it we've got we have a whole container back at the conservation lab that we've made up just to store all the old rope in and and we've sealed it and um with with double glazing so when you open the container door and then you open the double glazing door you just get this waft of 1758 it's uh it's quite incredible wonderful um yeah i mean Obviously, you've been focusing more on artifacts rather than the the timbers of the ship itself. Um, although you've said that you and your colleagues did um, raise one very recognisable part, which was the cutwater. Um, why was this ob- particular object chosen for recovery? Um, was it quite challenging to raise it? Well, I mean, first of all, I say we, <clears throat> we we focused on recovering objects that were so the so the objects that are manageable and you can um, you can yeah, basically, it's easy to to recover. Yeah smaller objects because the ship is so big um we recorded the ship so using photo photogrammetry so we record it in you know really incredible detail so we, the ship is extremely important to us and that's the that is the that is the, the the best object is is the ship unfortunately we can't recover the ship because mm. we know from the from the experience of the mary rose how expensive it is to do that i mean I, i'm still you know if we had uh, if if we could we would yeah. We've, got, we've got half a ship there, just like the Mary Rose. It would be amazing to have that as a comparison. But we can't because it's extremely expensive. Uh, but the Cutwater, or also known as the um, the near the head, um, it's such a recognisable feature. It was it was the the you know the for, forwardmost part of the ship that divides as it's sailing through its divides the water it's it uh, gives it sort of water dynamics it um it hold you know at the top of the of the of the cut water is where the uh figurehead um stood so um you know these ships had great decorations even in the 1750s and you know there were great symbols of power so they would have these great elaborate um uh, carvings so the figurehead was you know it was an important feature of the ship and Although we don't have the figurehead, we have, you know, the huge cut water that the figurehead would have would have uh, perched on, um, and it's a huge uh, s- assembly of tim- timbers. So it's made up of eight timbers bolted together with these huge wrought iron bolts, um, and I think it was important to recover it. One that, because these uh, pieces of the ship. Uh, don't survive because shipwrecks you know they either crash into things at bow first and it breaks off splinters floats away um uh, with invincible it was lucky that she obviously hit the sandbank um 
and it just broke off and and kind of buried itself and that, and that's how we found it separated from from the stem which was still connected to the, to the bow but you get an idea of the size of invincible from from the cut water it's nine meters long and if we can't raise the ship this is a great way to demonstrate the size of of uh, the ship and in the individual timbers can you imagine trying to make people think how they put all these things together when we didn't have they didn't have things like cranes you know that we have today everything's done on block and tackle so I think it just brings it, it allows the general public to understand you know just the sheer size of these of these uh, these ships and these these ships were the height of technology of the time cutting yeah. edge and um, if we can't recover the whole thing I think it's important to recover important pieces and pieces that people can to that can they can identify and, and recognize and and I suppose with victory you've got a wonderful comparison so you know and you can compare the two so people can go and see victory and look at their cut water with you know with with all the carvings and the figurehead um and then hopefully one day you can visit Portsmouth Dockyard and see the Invincibles cut water on on display so um yeah as a, as a, you know it's um yeah, I thought it was a unique object, a piece of the ship, uh, and uh, that yeah, that doesn't survive in the archaeological record, and and you just don't see them, uh, you know, on display, you know, anywhere. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And I'm talking about the Invincible on display, um, as you mentioned before, the story is now being told in a, in an exhibition, uh, diving deep, HMS Invincible, seventeen forty four which was originally at the Historic Dockyards in Portsmouth and is now at Historic Royal Dockyard in Chatham, I think, till late November. Um, That's right, yeah. I wondered if you could give us any more insight into how an exhibition like this comes together. A huge, huge amount of teamwork and hard work by lots and lots of people um, from from seabed all the way through to curators and, and, and designers, um, exhibition designers to the volunteers doing all of the research into the history of the ship, the early salvaging, um, putting, you know, uh, yeah, there's so many people involved. Um, so, you know, we, as the archaeologists and divers, bring this material, bring this material up. You've then got the task of, you know, what's, how do we kind of disseminate this in a way that the general public can understand it? Um, so, and, and we were lucky, you know, we've got, great team at the museum in uh, in Portsmouth uh, led by Eileen Clegg and her army of uh, volunteers doing you know because you can't we can't the archaeologists can't do everything and there's so much research to find out um, and Eileen was you know had a great team of volunteers that were, were doing that but also sort of um, you know once the uh, exhibition was designed uh, by Rocket Box, who did a wonderful, did a, you know, put a lot of effort into trying to make it interactive, um, using all this kind of sense, you know, being able to use all your senses to get an idea of not only the ship but also how we excavated things. Um, the volunteers then came along and helped build this exhibition, put it all together, get the artifacts in, um, and just turn it into you know, you know, really interesting and interactive um, exhibition. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's 
from 2019 when we finished the excavation to 2021 i think it was, was it 2020 or 2021 can't remember it was like <laughs> it was a short a relatively short period of time from seabed to to exhibition uh, and that could only happen through uh, having a you know a, a huge team of uh, uh, volunteers and professionals in in museum uh, research ex- <clears throat> exhibitions and design so yeah it's, yeah it's not one person that's responsible for this it's just a, an absolute huge team effort and uh yeah i can't thank all of all of the people that have uh, that have helped yeah get it on get it on display do you think that um some of the artifacts that you've got are the, do you think they're good at um sort of um eliminating the the experiences of the crew and stuff like that i mean have you got some of the old bottles on display or <laughs> gone no, there are yeah i mean there's i mean a lot of the artifacts are still in conservation at the moment mm. so we had to choose artifacts uh, literally just i think from the mainly from the uh, the first season first season um of excavation but also we were lucky that um, obviously, during the 1980s, there was a huge amount of material recovered. So we can't forget that actually a lot of the, a lot of the artifacts in the current exhibition do come from the original excavations yeah. uh, too. Um, and there's all sorts of things from wine bottles to wig curlers. So these these small little fine like wig curlers that you know give you an idea of you know the fashion uh, of the top of of the time. And it's these small little objects that are kind of I guess mundane, but are actually. People can, re- you know, everyone can relate to fashion and how it changes. Um, uh, and then you've got, it's not just the objects. I think what the exhibition really brings out or tries to bring out is the methodology of working underwater and the environment. And so you've got this great visual um, aids um, with, uh, th- you know, there was a, a three screen projection. So the, the, we had a wonderful cameraman, Michael Pitts, uh, recording the ex- documenting the excavation, and in 2019 he he had this kind of camera rig that was three. It was actually four cameras, three GoPros, and his uh, uh, another, I think SLR, um, and that was to project onto a three screen. So when you're viewing it, you're seeing not only the kind of the diver on the shipwreck, but you know this you know, the sea, you know, the seascape around him and everything. Yeah. Um, and the sound of the bubbles and the talk, you know, and um, you've got a vibrating seat that's meant to, uh, you know, give you a sense of what it's like working underwater with, you know, the sound of the bubbles and, and things like that. So, yeah, it's got a, it's a wonderful sensory uh, <laughs> exhibition um, about, not just about the ship, but actually how arche- underwater archaeology is is done. So, yeah. uh, I mean, I hope that came that came across. I mean, that's it's it's difficult to kind of. Not everyone obviously dives. Most people don't dive, so it's difficult no. to understand what it's like. But um, hopefully, this gives people an idea of what it was like and how fun. I mean, the important thing is it was a really fun and exciting project to do and. Generally, underwater archaeology is is like is like that. Um, yeah, I and no, I, I went to the exhibition in Chatham. I, I really, really enjoyed it. I must say, it's it's a really good exhibition. Uh, what to add to what Callum asked about artifacts? I mean, what I really loved 
were the what you call the very everyday objects. So you know the cleaning tools that the, the crew were using and the wooden plates that they were eating off. I and mean, the wreck has so much to say just about what everyday experiences were like on board the ship, doesn't it? No, exactly. And I mean that's the the great thing about shipwrecks is what you what you get. I mean a shipwreck is generally a catastrophe, an accident. It was never meant to happen. So what we find is um, material that was still in use at the time. So it was a snapshot of a particular moment. Um, so you you get to you get to understand so much more about how you know maritime you know how shipboard life and culture what what the the everyday people were doing on a daily basis the daily routines rituals um i mean one of the i'm trying to think of objects and we've one of the divers demo uh found a chest outside the break in the ship near it was in the bow where the where the forward magazine was and he found a chest outside the outside the ship so where the ship is split open um he started excavating between the port side and the starboard side and he came he came across this chest uh absolutely perfect all four sides lid even sort of the you know the rope carrying handles and we carefully recovered it brought it to the surface and all incredibly excited and we couldn't help but have a you know a sneak peek i mean there was nothing to stop the lid coming off um, no, no, of course not. Yeah, <laughs> well, all the nails had rotted. You know, there was nothing. There's nothing holding it together. Um, and and you know, we we're all thinking before we op- opened it up was what's going what's going to be inside it? Is it a personal chest of of an officer or something? Is it going to have you know you know navigational equipment in there, pistols or something? So, and then when we opened the lid and we looked inside, and it was and it was like four compartments. And again, that was brilliant. And we said, oh, but it's all black. All the you know and and uh, as we started to drain the water out, we suddenly saw what was in there, and it was just musket balls and black powder, and so, which at the time we were like a little bit deflated because we thought, well, we've got thousands of musket balls, uh, you know, that they're not particularly rare, um, and we were slightly disappointed. But you know, once you get over that, and then you look at the box itself, it was just perfect. It had eight compartments. And then when we got it back to the to the lab, we looked on the inside of the lid and there was a um, a witch's mark. So it's this, uh, do you know what a witch's mark is? Yeah. You find them in medieval buildings yes. um, and there are, it's, it's basically a superstitious thing to uh, warn off evil spirits. So it's just, it shows how they were, you know, seamen were very superstitious mm, even in yeah. 1958. I mean, you see it in Master Commander when um, <laughs> when they think they've got a Jonah, and that's when the guy jumps overboard um, yeah. to uh, uh, to the relief of all of all of the other shipmates, and and it, you know this is the evidence of their superstitions. It, I mean, it was funny to find it on a chest full of musket balls. You know, it was an am- ammunition box. Yeah. that uh, someone, perhaps the master gunner was a bit superstitious yeah I mean, yeah. yeah so it's those little details that it's that a whole story in itself isn't it yeah exactly um and it gives you a connection you get such a good connection with you know the people that lived on board um and that i mean that is the, the wonderful thing about the preservation that you can get on shipwrecks you know the details it's the details on the objects 
that give you that connection with with the people those who used it and made and made made these things so and you know i mean I, in the article, we speak about the organisation of stuff and, yeah. you know, how things are clearly labelled. Um, and, you, you know, that's, that, that gives you an idea of just, you know, the, the professionalism and the discipline on board. But these, the, the little witches mark gives you, you know, that's, that isn't a, you know, that, that isn't a standard naval thing to be suspicious no, of. That's no. someone's personal belief that he's, they've marked on, on the, you know, on the box. So, yeah, it's a nice personal touch. It's lovely. And uh, speaking of um, ammunition and and the ship's professional role, um, obviously, as you said at the start of our conversation, the Invincible was uh, was a fighting ship, first and foremost. Um, I wondered if we could talk a bit more about how the archaeology reflects that aspect of of her her life. Uh, Well, yeah, I mean, she was was a warship, the the cutting edge of technology, 74-gun ship. was brimming with well seventy four uh, guns, but not only was the ship like invincible, the seventy four ship, cutting edge, um, uh, designed uh, to carry uh, you know heavy guns low, a greater number of heavy guns low down. When the English in seventeen, I think it was seventeen fifty five or seventeen fifty seven, um, decided to try and make to even improve her even more. Um, and they were trialing these new 24 pounder guns, which were shorter, l- more lightweight, and they were put on Invincible's upper gun deck. So she had a th- lower gun deck of 32 pounders, which were our biggest guns. Generally, the upper deck would have 12, uh, 18 pounders, but Invincible had, were trialing these new 24 pounders. She was also, this is at the very beginning when we were trying to uh, improve our gunnery and rate of fire, and we start trialing cannon locks. So Invincible was trialing cannon locks on her nine-pounder guns. Basically, cannon locks are a much more efficient way of firing the guns than using the old method of, of a linstock. Um, and so this is 1758. So this is the very beginning of, uh, of trialing these things. So yeah, I mean, she was using new, innovative. Uh, technologies in, ter- in terms of the the guns and 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 gun equipment when she wrecked. So um, yeah, not, not yeah, just uh, a very formidable ship. Just sadly that she just wasn't involved in anything. I know any it, would have, it would have been slightly maybe more glorious if it had gone down very violently in a battle or something like that. But uh, yeah, just, just sort of to hit a sandbank very close to home. So. I suppose at least that meant the crew all got away though. Yes. It wasn't, it wasn't a tragedy in that sense, yeah. I guess. So finally, Dan, I mean, it feels like a very silly question considering what we've talked about. Um, but why do you think maritime archaeology and um, the, sort of the preservation of these wrecks is so important? It's uh, a it's a question I'm always uh, having to think about and justify what we are doing. Because um, it's not just invincible, you know, kind of moving on to the next shipwreck now. And they're always asking, oh, why is it important? Um, I mean, maritime archaeology is important just as archaeology is important. We're trying to learn about our past, past cultures, past societies. Um, and obviously maritime in UK, but also, you know, in any any country that has, has a coastline, um, maritime culture is extremely important. You know, the sea was our 
uh, linked to the rest of the world. It was linked for trading and travel. It was also, you know, a defensive um, line. Um, and, and in England and Britain, you know, the sea was how we defended ourselves. So we've always had this, uh, you know, a, a, a real interest in in shipbuilding and producing warships, uh, you know, not only to defend our shores, but to expand the, you know, empire. And, you know, I don't want to get into anything too nationalistic, but um, uh, the thing with shipwrecks, as we've spoken about, is you can get amazing preservation. And through the objects and the details on the objects, but also the ships, you get a connection with the actual people on board, but also you can't you can't forget that there is a connection with the land. You know these were ships were built in in dockyards. You know timber came from forests. You know so you can't you can't look at the ship in isolation from from you know the seascape and, and the the maritime uh, landscape. Um, and but it's important that we don't focus just on you know a few ships. You know if we want to track developments and changes over time and how we improve and how we develop we've got to we've got to you know each ship is important so um that's why you know i say it's we've got to do more you know we can't just look at the mary rose and look at invincible you know there's so many other ships. we we're so spoiled for uh shipwrecks in uk waters but really we've got to be honest very little uh is done and we need more um, to study these ships because if you study them as a collect, collect a collective it makes individual ships more important because you can compare and you know with other ships and see how things change and develop and you know this is a tight you know this this period of seafaring technology changes very quickly you know and things develop and change so you've got to track that and uh, the best way to do it is with the physical objects themselves mm. i mean so many things. I mean, the, the really interesting things about Invincible are not the things that you see in the history books that are recorded, written down. It's the the everyday routines, the the challenges. You see the the sort of the the, um, the things that they had to try and overcome. So sort of the alterations that they made to equipment. And they didn't write these things down. They just did it. You know, they kind of you know look. They were um, reacting to challenges. Um, so each ship is different. And even though, you know, you know, in terms of naval ships, you know, they would have been part of a, uh, you know, a, a strict rules and regulations. Well, what you actually find is that not, you know, there's lots of differences and that, you know, people are different. Not everyone does it the same way. Not, and not everyone are conformists. Mm. They like to do things differently. Of course. So, and it's finding these unique details that tell us about these people. That's and that's you get that from shipwrecks. It's just you you know with maritime archaeologists are spoiled because you know they are wonderful time capsules yeah. uh, that have been sealed, uh, you know, in time. And it's like the Mary Celeste story. Mm. You know, when you when you excavate through the layers, you're coming into this. You know, you're entering the ship. You, you know, you're. Yeah. You're walking on board and there's no the crew have gone but they've left everything just how it was i mean that's that's how i that's how it feels to me anyway um yeah and that's it's it it's, it's it's obviously important to me but i hope it's important to you know other people see it's you know important and i think people do like that idea of 
traveling back in time yeah. and understanding you know what went on back then you know and, you know the, the sh a ship is it's like a little you know you know when you've got 700 people on board it's like a little you know, it's a big community it's like a small town yeah living in a very confined space you know and it's you know, it's full of you know domestic items uh uh navigational things you know medicines you know you had a doctor on board a surgeon that's will have a chest full of the medicines of the day so you know you just don't you don't get you don't really get that so much on in terrestrial sites other yeah. than sites like pompeii so every site is a pompeii site under <laughs> yeah, underwater no absolutely if you've got if you've got a wonderful burial environment yeah. so uh, yeah it's just incredible Lovely stuff. Uh, thank you, Dad. I'm, I, I could talk more about so many things yeah, aspects of the show because it is fascinating, particularly all the superstitions and stuff, which is always yeah. um, is really interesting. But thank you so much for um, talking to us today. It's been lovely and very interesting as well. Well, thanks for letting me ramble ramble on, about, <laughs> uh, uh, Invincible and another shipwrecks. And yeah, it's been a pleasure. Wonderful. That was Dan Pascoe talking to us there. And don't forget that you can read the article on Invincible in the latest issue of Current Archaeology magazine, as well as the entire magazine on the past website. And you can also keep up with Dan's work by following him on Twitter, he's at danpasco 79 and via his YouTube channel, Pasco Archaeology. There's also a Facebook page about the Invincible Rec site, that's facebook.com forward slash Invincible Rec site. Uh, simple enough. Also on Dan's YouTube channel, there's a video about his current project, the 70-gun warship Northumberland, which was lost on the Goodwin Sands in 1703. Uh, finally, Carly, the article on Invisible is just one of many fascinating features in the latest issue of Current Archaeology, of course. Uh, what else do readers have to look forward to this time? Oh, lots of wonderful things. Uh, we've got a piece about Sisbury Ring, which is a landmark very close to where I live, down in a beautiful West Sussex. Um, it's an Iron Age hill fort, but the site also preserves traces of Neolithic flint mining. It's a, it's a really cool place to visit. And the National Trust, Worthing Museum and the South Downs National Park Authority have launched this really interesting interpretive trail around the site using QR codes. And, and you can use those to access short videos on your smartphone to learn more about the site. Um, I went for a little nosy, so I've written a piece about that. Next, we're off to Canterbury to learn about a new initiative to protect some of the city's historic buildings amongst um, urban growth. It's a, it's a proper Canterbury tale, that one. Uh, we oh, no pause for laughter. No, Callum does not find that funny. I will move on. We also have <laughs> we oh, pity laugh. I like it. Oh yes, sorry, I get it now. I get it now. Sorry. Every tale. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> moving very swiftly on. Uh, we also have an article about Butser Ancient Farm, which is a really influential and important experimental archaeology centre. And today it's a it's a visitor attraction too, and they have all kinds of reconstructed buildings there representing. Oh, excavated structures from the Neolithic and the Iron Age, and they've got a Roman villa and Anglo-Saxon houses of all sorts. And anyway, they're celebrating their 50th birthday this year. So we've got a piece tracing the farm's history and sharing some memories from those who've been involved with or been inspired by its work. So that's really lovely. And finally, I recently visited Burlington House in Piccadilly, which is the home of the Society of Antiquaries of London. And they've just launched a new affiliate membership, which makes their collections much more open to the public. 
and I went for a little explore around their library, which is beautiful. I want to live there. It was a proper like Beauty and the Beast moment. Ah, when I walked in, I was like, oh, that is a library. It's beautiful. Uh, and I also saw some of their amazingly diverse museum collections. So the society has been going for over 300 years. And I swear they have they have collected everything. They've got prehistoric artifacts and copies of Magna Carta, and they have a wart. It's a Victorian wart. It's from a human hand. I saw it. We've printed a photo in the magazine. It is it is magnificent. Read the article just for the wart. No, no. and to learn about these wonderful collections and how you can access them yourself. But the wart, the wart. I nearly put on the cover. I did not put it on the cover. But it is oh, no, there. seriously? Oh, no, it's amazing. <laughs> I didn't, but it's wonderful. I love the wart. It's my favourite thing. Um, yes, so yes, Society of Antiquaries, wonderful collections. Go check them out. Hooray. Uh, well, yes, that's not how I was expecting to end things, but um, thank you very much, Carly. I think that's enough for today. <laughs> yes, and thank you for listening as well. Yes, to our, our warts and all coverage of the magazine. Warts and all. <laughs>